Oh Lord, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word to accomplish Your purposes in our lives. Your Word informs us that Your Word never returns void to You. So use it to probe the depths of our hearts today. Use it to confront us. Use it to transform us. Use it to challenge us. Use it to comfort us. We pray, O Lord, that Your Word would be a powerful tool in Your hands. That You would that You would search us. That You would search our hearts. And that You would make us more like Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm Psalm 49. We're in Psalm 49 today. Uh, Normally, we're in the book of John, but on the first Sunday of every month, uh, we are going through uh, the Psalms. So today, we're going to be in Psalm 49, which is a very different Psalm than we've seen so far, Uh, but it's a, a very valuable one, especially in a time of economic uncertainty. Uh, The title of this sermon is The Foolishness of Trusting Riches. That is what this psalm is about. So today we'll be looking at Psalm 49. And as you're turning to Psalm 49 in your Bibles, think about the fact that people have always tried to escape death. Uh, You know, we've we've seen science in our day and age make just incredible progress on many fronts. And with that in mind, I guess it shouldn't be too surprising that one of the things that science is trying to eradicate is death itself. Uh, scientists have been arguing for at least uh, the past generation that immortality is at least theoretically possible. The idea is feasible, they believe. And uh, I was reading this week that the chief science officer for one of these biotech corporations has openly stated that he believes that the first person who will live beyond a thousand years has already been born, that they are indeed alive today, that somebody who's alive today is going to have some, something done to them that's going to allow them to live for over a thousand years. Now, if you ask me, the only reason, and there is only one reason why a person would want to eliminate the possibility of death, and that is that this world is their home. That this world is their home. And that's something that no Christian can ever rightfully say. We know the old hymn, this world is not my home. Uh, But man knows, every man knows instinctively what awaits him after this life. He knows that the judgment of God awaits, and thus fallen man has at least hypothesized that he can escape that wrath, that terrible day, by figuring out how to avoid death altogether. Now, the ironic thing is, or the funny thing is, that this isn't just a modern pursuit, that the search for immortality goes back thousands and thousands of years. Uh, according to writings from uh, ancient writings from the 4th century B.C., uh, you guys have probably heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, he actually set out on a quest to find the water of life. What an interesting thing for a pagan to be searching for 400 years before Jesus, that he would be searching for the water of life. I mean, it's entirely possible that uh, Jesus, being aware that this is what Alexander the Great was searching for and that he failed in his search for, would say that from him, that those who believe in him, from him, from their innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. That's one place Alexander the, uh, the Great didn't look was in Christ, was in Yahweh. Of course, his quest failed. A hundred years later, in the third century B.C., China's first emperor, Ying Zheng, proclaimed that his dynasty would live for 10,000 generations. And so, with that goal in mind, he spoke before he actually did something to, to make that possible. He instructed his population, his subjects, to discover an immortality elixir that would allow him and anyone else who drank it to live forever. Obviously, this quest also 
failed. Uh, in 1229 AD, the famous Mongolian warrior Genghis Khan recruited the services of a, a Taoist philosopher to find an elixir that would cause immortality. Uh, Genghis Khan was convinced that the way to achieve immortality was by having a pure heart and few desires. Uh, the philosopher told him there is no such thing. Of course, again, uh, this quest failed. Uh, in the 1400s AD, Italian philosopher and priest Marsilio Ficino recommended that the elderly recognize themselves uh, or re-energize themselves by sucking the blood of, quote, a clean, happy, temperate adolescent. Uh, is that where vampires came from? I, I have no idea. But obviously, that didn't work because Ficino isn't around anymore. Uh, but perhaps because he was convinced that Ficino was on to something, in uh, 1490 AD, Pope Innocent VIII uh, supposedly underwent several very crude blood transfusions from three young donors uh, in an attempt to cure what appeared to be a fatal disease. All of the donors died, and so did Pope Innocent VIII. Now, all of these uh, instances, all these examples, all these efforts to avoid death proved to be in vain. They proved to be absolutely futile. Perhaps God will allow science in the modern day to temporarily find what appears to be a cure for death, but it will never change the fact that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, just like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says. All of our days, friends, all of our days are numbered by God. And there has never, ever been a single person in the history of the world who has died before the time that God ordained in eternity past or who has lived beyond the day that God has ordained for him to die. So as we continue our study of the Psalms today, we come to a Psalm of wisdom that addresses this pursuit of avoiding death. It's a psalm of wisdom uh, that we find here in Psalm 49. A psalm about the powerlessness of riches and the certainty of death. So the point of this psalm is that the wise must realize that because nothing can prevent the inevitability of death. Living for the things of this world is a foolish endeavor. Pursuing the things of this world above everything else is a foolish endeavor. So this psalm is actually a warning, and, and indeed a timeless warning, in the sense that it is always relevant, uh, because man's heart is just as fallen today as man's heart was when this psalm was written. So it's a warning to anyone and everyone who would be tempted to put their ultimate hope and their trust in anything that they will lose upon dying. So we'll start with Psalm 49 verses 1 to 4. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Now, avoiding death hasn't been the only thing that humanity has sought to do across the span of human history. The pursuit of collecting and hoarding and gathering up all the things of this world, namely riches, has been just as much a pursuit for man as has been a way to avoid death. It's man's nature to shun those things which are truly of eternal significance, and to instead pursue all the shiny, beautiful things of this world. That's as true today as it was back in the day that this was written. And so it's with this in mind that the psalmist calls upon people everywhere to listen to what he has to say. So this is something that applies to both the rich and to 
the poor. It, it's something that applies to the high and to the low. Regardless of your social status, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, this psalm applies to all of humanity throughout the ages. None of those factors, the demographic factors, matter. Because regardless of where you stand in all those issues, there's something that levels the proverbial playing field for absolutely everyone. And that is the certainty, the absolute certainty, that every single person on the face of the earth will die. So this renders this call a timeless one. He's calling on people of His own time to listen just as much as He's calling out to us today to listen to what He has to say, to the wisdom that He is going to share with us. Now, somebody might protest this and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm already a Christian. I already have eternal life in Christ. Why should I incline my ear? Why should I listen to what He has to say? And the answer is pretty simple and straightforward. Because all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Even as Christians, we need the wisdom that the Bible teaches to us. We need to think about these things deeply in order that we may benefit from them. It is profitable to us. And the truth is that being a Christian hasn't been a factor that has convinced enough of us who are Christians to not be consumed with materialism. The West is absolutely enslaved by this materialistic mindset. It's just so pervasive in Western culture. But the truth is that even very mature Christians can easily very easily be tempted to pursue and, and to put at least far too much of their hope and their trust in riches. It's a timeless problem that people do this, which is why Jesus warned us so many times about the pitfalls of prosperity. Truly I say to you, He said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. I remember when I was in college and this was brought up, and one of the professors tried to explain this away, saying, he's not talking about a needle that you actually sew with. No, this was, this was talking about a, a little gate that camels would go through. And it was possible, but it took a lot of work. Totally missing the point there. What Jesus is saying there is that it is impossible for somebody who loves their riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when the disciples heard this, they, they say to themselves, okay, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with God, anything's possible. With God, anything's possible. Praise the Lord for grace. So the psalmist here issues a call to all people, rich and poor alike, to listen. To listen. To incline our ears and to listen. The idea is that no matter where a person may stand economically or otherwise, they would be wise to listen. Why? He tells us here in verse 3. He says, My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. What's interesting to note here is that both the words wisdom and understanding uh, are in the plural tense, meaning that the author here has many important things to say, many wise things to say, many things for us to learn and understand uh, and consider. So while many psalms were written to praise God or they were written as, uh, as prayers to God, this one is very different. This one is given to us to impart to us uh, godly wisdom. And how is He going to do that? How is He going to teach us godly wisdom? He tells us in verse 4. He writes this, he says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Now, when he says, I will incline my ear to a proverb, what he's saying there is that he will turn his own ear to God to hear what God has to say on the matter. Uh, the truth of the matter is that if we haven't spent time listening to God, uh, we don't have anything important to say. In, in Charles Spurgeon's words, he said this, he said, quote, He who would have others hear begins by hearing himself. End quote. 
the word riddle in verse 4, that's a strange word. It's a Hebrew word that maybe it's better translated as mystery. Uh, mystery. He's about to expand on what we might call the mystery of life, death, and the pursuit of riches. And this brings us to one of the most important points of the psalm. And the, the point that it brings us to is actually one that we haven't really touched on a whole lot yet in the psalms. And it's this, that the Bible offers no wisdom, no insight, no understanding, no genuine comfort to those who come to it like it's a magic eight ball or like it's a crystal ball, as if it's a simple little roadmap that doesn't require a lot, a lot of contemplation and meditation. Somebody who comes to Scripture like it's, an, like it's a magic eight ball, uh, cracking the Scriptures open only when there's an emergency, only when there's a, a need for some kind of direction, they will fail to understand it. The depths of Scripture, the depths of the wisdom in Scripture are cloaked in mystery. And they are so contrary to the ways of human doing and thinking. So if you're going to understand this, if you're going to understand Scripture, but particularly a mystery like he's going to present for us here in Psalm 49, you must commit yourself to not only deep contemplation of what he's saying, but also to yielding yourself to what he says unconditionally. That is, if the Scriptures say it, you must have a willingness to accept it and to yield to it, even if you don't necessarily like it or completely understand it. Otherwise, I think it's safe to say that you will understand very little of it, if any. So yes, commit yourself to the study of the Scriptures by any means, by, by all means necessary, because right living flows out of right understanding. When we commit ourselves to the right understanding of the Scriptures, it will change our lives. It will conform us to Christ's likeness. So it starts with yielding ourselves and committing ourselves to contemplating and understanding the Scriptures, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at the mind. It plants a root that must bear fruit. And that comes through a lot of contemplation and meditation on the Word. The truth is, the truth is covered in mystery so often in Scripture. And the psalmist is going to uncover for us what comes in the form of a proverb of sorts that he was going to sing on the harp, a reminder that the psalms are meant to be sung. So he continues in verses 5 to 9. He writes, Why should I fear in days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. What a mysterious thing it is and how contrary to fallen man's sinful ways of thinking and being it is to consider that there are things that money that there are things that riches cannot buy it's it's strange isn't it to consider that so many people spend their lives in the pursuit of riches and building their estate building their net worth when death is lingering around the corner at all times and will eventually come for every single one of us and we don't know when. Now as we've seen, people have tried to escape death throughout human history for thousands and thousands of years. And while God may allow us to find a way to delay it, it will always be inevitable. God has death on a leash every second of your life. And there may be seasons where it snarls at you and where it barks at you and where it pulls the, the leash taut. But for every man and woman, God has ordained that there will be a, death when it, uh, a day when it will be released and the death will strike. And it is wise to live your life in light of that truth, 
Conversely, it is the height of foolishness to ignore the reality of it. If death is certain, and it is, if death is certain, and if we are eternal creatures, that is, if there's, a, if, if there's something after this life where we exist, if the Bible is right and our, our existence doesn't end with death, if death is certain, and it is, and if we are eternal creatures, and we are, then the wise thing to do is to make sure that we are prepared for what comes after this life. The foolish thing to do which is also the most common thing to do, I guess I might add, is to focus on this life, on on the here and now, and and all the things that we have, that is all the riches that we have, or, or all the riches that we could have, all the riches that we desire, and to pursue them. And these are riches with which we will part when death does come for us. The psalmist starts with one of the more common reasons that people might uh, gather or, or, or collect riches, which is so that they'll have something to fall back on should days of adversity lie ahead. So he begins with a rhetorical question asking, why should I fear in days of adversity? Now this isn't to say by any means that we shouldn't have something to fall back on. It's not saying that we shouldn't prepare and set something aside should we need uh, more funds or something down the road. Think about Joseph. Joseph uh, was divinely, uh, you know, he foresaw a time of famine coming in Egypt and he prepared accordingly and and Scripture praises him for it. It says that that was was the right thing to do. Uh, We would be wise to do likewise. But as people who know that God is sovereign over death and life, we shouldn't be motivated to prepare by fear. We should be motivated to prepare by wisdom. But beyond that, our, our trust shouldn't be in ourselves or in what we've done to prepare. Let me say that again. Our trust shouldn't be in what we've done to prepare in ourselves. Right? Ultimately, our trust shouldn't be in ourselves at all. It should be entirely in God. And because this is where the psalmist's ultimate hope and trust is placed, in God, he contrasts himself with those who uh, put their trust elsewhere, specifically in their wealth, in their abundance of riches. Now, it's important to see that the psalmist isn't saying that it's necessarily bad to have riches. What he's saying is that it's sinful to put our trust in riches. That's an important distinction to make. It's not necessarily sinful to have riches, but it is necessarily sinful to put your ultimate trust in riches. It's sinful to put our trust, our ultimate trust, in anything other than God. But people are probably tempted to trust in riches and to pursue riches more than anything else. See, it's not necessarily sinful for people to have money. It's sinful for money to have you. That's when you know that you are in sin. It's not necessarily when you have money, but when money has you. Think about men like Abraham and Joseph and David who were incredibly wealthy. Uh, By today's standards, I think they would probably be billionaires. Uh, But yet, Abraham is the only person in Scripture who receives the designation of being a friend of God. And David has the unique designation of being a man after God's own heart. So owning riches, friends, it's important that we see this. Owning riches isn't inherently sinful. Uh, Riches owning you is sinful. Uh, And the wise realize how easily and how quickly this can happen. The wise realize what a snare riches can be. How naturally our flesh would trust in riches and they, they live their lives accordingly. So how can we know for sure that we're not putting our ultimate hope in riches? Let's start with this. Let's say you've got some money in the stock market. Most of you probably do in one way or another. Let's say you've got a 401k. Maybe you have a stock account. One way or another, you, you have some type of riches. So let's start with this. If you lost it all tomorrow, all of it, if you lost it all tomorrow, would it so thoroughly devastate you that you would curse God? 
Think about what Job's wife tried to entice him to do. Curse God and die. Would it completely change who you are, in your opinion? In other words, would it cause you to have maybe a lower view of your inherent worth, uh, of who you are, self-esteem? Or how about this, would it make you feel like life was less worth living? How many times have we seen people commit suicide when the stock market crashes? Why? Because they've fallen into this very trap right here. Conversely, if, if your net value tomorrow, not that it plummeted, but let's say that your net value tomorrow doubled, would it make you feel like your importance in the world has doubled as well? Would it cause you to have a higher view of yourself? Would it cause you to look down your nose, so to speak, at your fellow man? It shouldn't, right? We, we know that. It, it shouldn't. Your identity should be where? Not in your money, but in Christ. Christ is your identity, not your riches. It shouldn't be connected in any way to how much or to how little you own. Here's the ultimate test to know whether riches own you. The ultimate test is this. Whose money is it, really? Is it yours or is it God's? Is it yours and you can do whatever you want with it? Or has God entrusted you with it for a season at least? Here's what John Copenhaver, my friend John Copenhaver, has to say about it. He says, The moment you consider riches to be yours, you fall, you fall under the curse pronounced by the Lord that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he says this, he says, Think thoroughly through these words before you go about managing what you believe to be your money. At one point in his earthly ministry, Jesus told a parable of a man who had incredible riches. In fact, he had so many riches that he didn't have a place to store them. He had so many riches, he didn't know what to do with all of them. So this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. He says, the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus concludes with this. He says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the point of that parable. The man's sin wasn't that he had riches, wasn't that he had an abundance. His sin was that he was so consumed with these riches that he was not rich toward God. This question, the question that this forces us to ask ourselves as readers of the Word is whether or not we are rich toward God regardless of how much we have, regardless of how little we have. And this parable shows us the absolute absurdity of living for things that you and I are guaranteed to lose one day and of not spending the time that God has given us in this life to prepare ourselves for eternity. You, you do know that you will lose everything that you, every material possession that you own. One day you're going to lose it all. You know that, right? Live your life accordingly. And, and even if you have all the money in the world, you're still going to have that day. There's nothing that you can do to change the reality that one day you will lose it all. The psalmist says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. This underscores the fact that nobody has enough money 
to save themselves or to save anybody else from death. Now, don't be confused by the psalmist speaking of redeeming another's life instead of his own. Some commentators get kind of hung up on that. The point that he's ultimately going to try to, to bring to us to see is that only God can redeem. But there's not a single one of us who can, including people like Bill Gates, including Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and the list goes on and on and on. You could take all of the riches that every single person on the Forbes 100 list has, and it still would not be enough to redeem a single person from death. Death cannot be bribed. It can't be avoided. Only God can redeem. So if money can't, be, uh, can't, can't bribe death, if money can't protect us from death, then why should we trust in it in an ultimate sense? The fool will learn when, when death comes that ultimately riches are absolutely worthless. They're, they're vanity. They can't even keep us from great troubles. How can they keep us from death? I mean, if you think about it, rich people are involved in all kinds of troubles and scandals. They often have multiple marriages, multiple divorces, multiple lawsuits filed against them, and so on and so forth. I mean, sometimes those kinds of troubles not only aren't avoided by having riches, often they're actually caused by having riches. Now, most people probably don't think about their riches as a means of circumventing death, although some certainly do. Uh, Instead, most people simply refuse to acknowledge the inevitability of death, and they fail to live their lives in light of its inescapable and imminent reality. And so this is what the psalmist discusses next in verses 10 to 12. He writes, "...for he sees that even wise men die." The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Now the reason that it is foolish uh, to, to attempt to avoid the inescapable reality of death coming someday is seen in the fact that it comes for absolutely everyone from every background, every ethnicity, every social status, every demographic. And when it does, we must leave all of our stuff, all of our material things, all of our riches behind. You can't take those things with you. They will be gone the day that you leave this life. Now it used to be that when a per- when a person was buried, they would be uh, the person being buried would be covered by a shroud, and it was from this custom that there arose a saying: "Shrouds have no pockets." In other words, no place to put your money. Uh, this is obvious to absolutely everyone, and yet it's not absolutely obvious to the fool, for the simple reason that the fool just refuses to think about it or plan for it. They are completely aware of the fact that death is coming, and yet they waste their lives pretending like it's not. And when death does come, all the hard work, all the labor that a person invested, all the, the, the effort they spent accumulating riches is suddenly lost. Suddenly it's, it's all for absolutely Nothing when that person's riches are then given to another person who will also eventually lose it. It's meaningless. It's vanity. That's the conclusion that the wisest of all men, King Solomon, uh, that's the conclusion that he reached and recorded for us in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 2.11, he writes, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done. In other words, all my work and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. In other words, all the work that we do to accumulate stuff, to gather riches... It is vanity, meaning it is ultimately meaningless. 
It's a vapor in the wind, just like we are. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 3.19 that, quote, the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. The, the, The psalmist here in Psalm 49 actually acknowledges the same reality. He says, man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. Think of all the work. Think of all the effort, all the blood, sweat, and tears that people invest in their pursuit of riches. Our psalm offers, uh, or psalm acknowledges that some even conquer foreign lands and have those lands named after them. But so what? So, so you've got a, a, a town named after you. So you've got a, a country maybe named after you. But you die someday and you're not even around to enjoy it. You have a nice house. Great. But guess what? Even if you have a beautiful mansion, even if you have a luxurious house, you are still going to spend more time in the ground than you spent above it. None of us can avoid or escape death. And so with this much established, the psalmist now gives us a contrast between those who put their ultimate trust, their ultimate hope in riches, and those who put their ultimate trust in God. Uh, Let's look at verses 13 to 15. He says, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Selah. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their forms shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Selah. Now the word Selah means, take a minute to think about this. Think, not, don't think shallowly about this. Think deeply about this. The contrast that he, that he offers for us here begins with the fate of the foolish who has put their trust in riches. Now, notice that there's a group that gets hitched to the, the rich, uh, that gets hitched to them, and that is those, who, uh, those after them who approve their words. Now, this is a poetic way of saying that rich people aren't the only fools. So are those who approve the ways and the words of the foolish. There are people out there who want to be just like the rich. Uh, There are people out there who just will absolutely absorb uh, everything that somebody like Warren Buffett has to to say. You know, if if he writes a book... Uh, they want to read it. They might read it twice or three times. If, if there's a, a video interview, they'll watch it at least once. These people aspire to be just like the wealthy because they assume that if they're just like the wealthy, they'll have the same wealth that the wealthy have. So riches are just as much an idol for such a person, even if they're poor. Even though they, they may not have as much as they want or wish, It's possible to be poor and still turn money into an idol. Not all of the rich are fools. Not all of the poor are wise. It's important for us to see that. The issue, the core issue that we're supposed to see here uh, in, in this psalm is what we're putting our trust in more than anything else. A few days ago, we've got chickens. And our chickens love grapes. Uh, I, I bring grapes out for them at least once a day. I bring it out for them on this little white plate. And they, they're gone in, in seconds. I mean, they just devour these grapes very quickly. And one of our chickens named Marsala, okay. One of, one of our chickens named Marsala, the other day I brought out some grapes. And she saw what I was bringing out. You know, they, they, they recognize the white plate. They know what it is. But as soon as I put the, the white plate down, Marsala starts going around to the other chickens trying to take their grape out of their mouth. And she's chasing all the other chickens around. And, and they love to be chased, apparently. They love to chase. But by the time she figures out that everybody's finished their grapes, she comes back to the plate and it's gone. It's all gone. And that's a picture of those who would pursue riches and by doing so, they miss the good gifts that God 
has offered to them. The sad fact is that for the person who is consumed by this pursuit of of more and more, pursuit of, of riches, whether they gain those riches or not, that pursuit will all end with an enormous pile of absolutely nothing, of error after this life. Not only will they experience to the fullest physical death, but such a person will also experience also to the fullest spiritual death. Money is a God that cannot redeem you. Money is a God that cannot save you, that cannot rescue you from the grave, which is somewhat ironic since the term redeem is a financial term, and the text does tell us that God does redeem. The psalmist continues by telling us that death shall be their shepherd. Now, if that sounds like a dark thing to say, if if while we were singing Psalm 49 this morning, you thought, wow, those are some really dark things to be singing about, it is. Idolatry is a dark thing. It leads to a dark place. And yet the truth is that reality for, for such a person who's pursuing the things of this world, who's pursuing riches, the truth is their reality is dark. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's what the wise man can say. The foolish can only say, Death is my shepherd, and I can never get enough. Verse 15 gives us one of the most glorious and and contrasting statements in all of Scripture. Anytime you see the words, uh, but God, begin a sentence, you can be certain that you're about to read something incredible, something something beautiful. In in contrast to the fool described in verses 13 and 14, who, who cannot be redeemed by their God, God with a small g that is, we learn from verse 15 that those who trust in the Lord will have their souls redeemed from the power of Sheol. He will rescue and redeem from hell those who trust in Him. Because He can. And only He can. And He'll bring them to Himself where they'll glorify Him and enjoy Him forever in perfect fellowship with Him in His presence. The psalmist says of God, for He will receive me. What's interesting to see is that the, the Hebrew verb for receive me is actually the same verb used of Enoch all the way back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Of course, if you know the story, you know Enoch uh, didn't taste death. Uh, Genesis 5.24 says Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, which tells us that there is something beyond this life. It tells us that there is a dwelling place after death for those who trust in the Lord. It's in the presence of God in heaven. This helps us to understand what's meant by the psalmist telling us in verse 14 that and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. That is, over the foolish. James Montgomery Boyce notes that, quote, I believe the early commentators were right when they suggested that the verse is actually in anticipation of the morning of the resurrection, when the saints shall be raised to glory and receive their spiritual rewards. One day, friends, one day, those who have trusted in the Lord will walk among the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God, but the wicked will not. God says in, a, in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, He asks some rhetorical questions and makes some interesting statements there. He says, Shall I ransom them, His people, from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Sound familiar? That's where it comes from. That's where Paul got it from. But the subject at hand is the fate of those who have trusted in God. What a blessed thing it is. What a a cherished thing it is to trust in the Lord instead of trusting in stuff, in things that we're going to lose, trusting in riches. Those who trust in the Lord will see Him. For them, death has lost its sting. Sheol has lost its sting. Their treasure is in heaven where it 
belongs. That's where the wise put their ultimate trust. That's where the wise build up treasure is in heaven. Who can redeem us from the power of death, from the power of hell? Who can save us from the wage of sin? Who can purchase us and bring us to eternal joy away from the wrath and damnation that you and I have earned by sinning? God can. Only God can. And God has promised that He will for all who prepare for eternity by trusting in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased us with a cost greater than all the wealth, all the riches on earth combined. He purchased us not with earthly treasures, but with the shedding of His own blood. And He has promised that one day He will receive us. He will receive His people, all who have trusted in Him, into His presence. Where He is, there we shall be also. This naturally brings us to a final appeal that the psalmist offers And that is to choose the way of the wise by seeing the fate of the foolish. So it concludes with verses 16 to 20. It says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself and Though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Think about the beasts that perish. The thing that separates man from beast is that we can actually think through something, whereas a beast can't. If a raccoon sees a cat... Its instinct is only to chase. Whereas if you and I see riches, we should have the wisdom to stop and think, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Those who have put their trust in riches might appear to have everything that money can buy, and then some. But someone who trusts in riches instead of God can't have the most important thing in the world, which is something that money can't buy, and that is the light of life in Christ. Why then should we fear? Why then should we envy those who have put their trust in riches? What they love most, they're going to lose. We will all one day leave this world through death's door. And we can only leave this world in one of two ways. You can either leave with God through faith in Jesus Christ, or you can leave this world with absolutely nothing. There's no third way. The irony is that those who have trusted in riches will have nothing, but those who have put their trust in Christ will understand that they've already had the greatest riches of all. And that is, as Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.7, the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal that's from Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 and 20 the question for us today friends is where are you storing up your true treasure where is your most cherished treasure is it in the bank is it maybe in the stock market is it in a new car is it in real estate Or are you storing up treasure in heaven through faith in Christ? Faith in Christ is the only treasure that you can take with you. So I could not urge you more strongly today, friends, to make Him your greatest treasure, your greatest pursuit, the object of your greatest trust. He is the only treasure that you can never, ever lose. The wise must realize that because nothing can prevent the inevitability of death, 
living for the things of this world instead of for Christ is a foolish, foolish endeavor. Friends, the reason you must prepare to stand before God is fairly obvious and fairly simple. It's because every single one of us, including you, will stand before God one day. And know this, there won't be a single person who stands before God someday and who will be told by God, you know, you spent too much time preparing for eternity. Nobody's going to hear that. Nobody's going to be able to say that. Friends, people have been seeking a way to avoid death for thousands of years, whether it's with an elixir or whether it's just not thinking about the reality of life's brevity, how short life is. Nobody succeeded in avoiding death. You won't either. So live for something that matters. And not only something that matters now, but something that matters eternally. For something that prepares you for eternity. And that leaves you with only one option. Living in the pursuit of Christ. Living to glorify God. And to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the multiple, multiple warnings against the dangers of riches, the the pitfalls of prosperity. Father, all we can do is confess that in our flesh, were it not for Your grace, we would be like the fools who pursue things that they are destined and guaranteed to lose. But we thank You that by Your grace, You have turned our hearts toward Yourself. You have drawn us to Christ. You ordained that we would hear the Gospel and that we would believe. And we thank You for this gift. Teach us, O Lord, to pursue Christ above everything else in this world. Teach us to be wise with the things that we have. Teach us, O Lord, to be good stewards. To see everything as belonging to You. And that the things that we have are simply things that You have entrusted us with. So we pray, O Lord that You would be glorified in our lives as we use our things, as we use our time for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.